We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson this week. Thrilled you're along with us. Uh, big news in Hamilton today if you're a Ticat fan, which is nice because there's been not much big news that we've been really happy about if you're a Ticat fan lately. It's not exactly been a the kind of year that has been memorable for all the right reasons. But today, even as the Ticats are at home watching the Argos and Blue Bombers get ready to play in a Grey Cup, today the Ticats seem to have stolen the thunder. In a large way, they seem to have stolen the thunder. Reports today from TSN's Dave Naylor that the Hamilton Ticats have traded for the rights to free agent quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell from Calgary. Now, it doesn't mean they've got him playing for sure. He is going to be a free agent, but between now and free agency, they now have the exclusive window to negotiate a new contract for him. You'd like to think that something like this happens because there's reason to believe that he can get signed, which would make this a thing that would a thing that would work. Uh, here to talk about it, the host of not only Good Morning Hamilton, but also the host of the fifth quarter, which is now the, you know, the not so much fifth quarter because the season's over. But when the season's on, the host of the fifth quarter, Rick Zamperin. Sir, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Scott? I'm look. I, if I, I got to believe that I'm not even as well, I'm fine. But I'm not as well as Ticat fans when they heard this news. I, I got to think a lot of people are pretty happy about this. Well, considering the reaction that we're seeing on social media, and I'm seeing, and I'm seeing on, uh, you know, uh, chat boards and, and chat groups that yeah, Ticats fans are exciting. Now they're they're you know wondering what the the payoff is and what the payback is or what the cost of making this acquisition is. And from what I've gleaned thus far, and I'm sure there's going to be other tidbits of information that are going to come out, is at this point draft picks are going the other way to the Calgary State. Peters. Now that might evolve. Uh, it might be draft picks or a draft pick and someone from the negotiation list uh, or a bit of both. Uh, and, and that might evolve if he signs in Hamilton right. as well. There might be some conditions on that as well. But certainly, uh, Ticats fans are pretty excited at today's news. Yeah, it usually is. It would usually be a case where they would, Calgary would get something more if he does, in fact, sign here. And if not, then you get what you get. Now, there's also, when you say there's the cost, there's also, I mean, this is a salary cap league. I don't expect Bo Levi Mitchell is going to come here as a philanthropist. So you are going to have to fit him into your salary cap. You've got two guys. Now you gave Dane Evans a big, well, pretty big contract last year. What do you do with it all now? Well, that is the decision-making process that the head coach and vice presidents of football operations, Orlando Steinauer and his and his crew, are going to have to make because they're paying Dane Evans in excess of four hundred thousand uh, dollars. You're not going to pay a backup that kind of money in the Canadian Football League. So there's going to be one of two things that'll happen: either number one, they sign Bill Levi Mitchell before he hits free agency in February because he is a pending free agent. Uh, or number two, they use this new trade piece in BLM and trade him somewhere else, a.k.a. Saskatchewan, because we know that quarterback Cody Fajardo uh, has intimated that he's going to test the market. So the Rough Riders, I'm sure, would be gladly accepting of Bo Levi Mitchell. And what does Hamilton get in return? Well, who knows at that point? But you now have two quarterbacks, at least two potential Number one quarterbacks in Bo Levi Mitchell, who's yet to sign, and Dane Evans making north of 400. Uh, and there's a decision to make. Do you do you trade off 
uh, Mitchell or do you sign him and then release or try to trade Dane Evans? It's it's going to be one of two things. I don't think it's going to be both. Well, I'm trying to think back. So when were we have the last Ticats season where you did not have depth at quarterback, where you didn't have two guys who could play? Because it seems as though... Almost as far, well, not every year, but I mean, it, this is a league now that almost requires you, though, to have two quarterbacks. Most teams this year had to dip into their second quarterback. And so keeping Evans and Bo Levi Mitchell, if you could restructure a contract or something, would be the ideal, whether that's possible or not. It would be the idea. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that Matt Schultz is a free agent as well. So, you know, if they had their druthers, there's no way they're keeping all three, but they would want to at least sign Schultz or uh, restructure uh, Dane Evans contract. And and the conversation would basically go like this. Hey, listen, Dane, we love you, uh, but, you know, we we can't afford to pay you this amount of money if you're going to play just a handful of games because Mitchell's going to be our new starter. And that's going to be a very difficult conversation. But if Evans says, okay, let's take one for the team and pay me, I don't know, 150, 200K, whatever that number is, um, the Ticats may be able to make that work. Let's not forget they're hosting the Grey Cup next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, teams that host the Grey Cup usually, you know, uh, go bonkers in free agency and trying to get those big names and those star players to make a run. This team is well positioned to do that with a pretty good core. Uh, but can they do that with two expensive quarterbacks and still get under the cap? That's going to be difficult to do. Here's the other thing. Bo Levi Mitchell, I mean, certainly, if not the biggest name among active quarterbacks right now, he'd be in the top one or two for sure based on his track record over the last decade. But he was not a guy who was starting by the end of the year. He is not, because of injury or whatever else, he was not the same Bo Levi Mitchell that was the Bo Levi Mitchell of 2015 or 2014. So, What are you getting? If you decide to sign him here, Rick, are you getting Bo Levi Mitchell, underlined exclamation mark, or are you getting Jason Moss, who came here after peaking in Edmonton, or Casey Printers, who came here after being such a star in BC, but then kind of had already passed their peak and weren't really what we expected when they arrived? That is the big question, because we know what Bo Levi Mitchell can do. He just hasn't done it in about three, three and a half years. Now, you know, the, the shoulder injury situation that he had endure back in 2019, obviously, you know, kind of derailed his, um, you know, escalation to superstardom. He was already kind of there with a couple of great cups, the most outstanding player award. He was the best quarterback in the league. But over the last three years, three seasons, uh, he hasn't been that. And the shoulder issue is a big one. He's had, you know, bumps and bruises here and there. So they're getting a soon to be 33 year old quarterback who is, you know, no argument here. He's on the downside of his career. I mean, he's, he hasn't thrown for 30 plus TDs in four seasons. He's a guy that, uh, you know, has slowed down a little bit in terms of the arm strength. I, I, I would hope that he is more of a Henry Burris that the Ticats got back in 2012-2013, who had two fantastic years in Hamilton, almost a renaissance in his career. But, you know, right now, if I'm looking at Bo Levi Mitchell and the whole you know picture of it, injury status included, I'm not sure he can get back to where he was. I'm certainly hopeful, and I think the Ticats are hoping that too, but that remains to be seen. That's, that's a massive question mark going into this whole offseason. Well, and the other question mark that goes with it is, is the team around him good enough that he's the piece that gets you back on track? Certainly, you know, Dane Evans did not have a great year, but some people would say, yeah, but the offensive line wasn't exactly doing a great job. Give him a better position around him. Maybe he's better. Is this team just one good Bo Levi Mitchell away from being back into the top of the league? 
I think they need a little bit more. I think they need another quality receiver. I think they need uh, maybe another addition to the O-line. I'm just not 100% comfortable with what they they played a lot better in the second half, but I don't think they're a championship caliber O-line as of yet. They probably smacked me around for saying that. Uh, defensively, I like some of the pieces, but they got to, you know, they got to make some tweaks there as well. And the bottom line is they got to stay healthy. You know, this team needs a Dylan Wynn down the stretch. This needs a healthy Braylon Addison. This team needs their star players to stay on the field. Otherwise, you can have the best players on paper, but if they're not in the starting lineup, they're not going to win. The other thing is, and this is a, uh, and we got to go here, but th- this is a league that um, you, you do have a lot of pieces that move around. I mean, the, the CFL these days, you don't have any team that goes into the offseason with everybody locked up. You have a long, long list on every team of free agents. So it's not like the Ticats are in a unique position this way, but they do have some very, very good players that they are going to have to, not just him, that they're going to have to try and figure out how to bring back. It, it really is a jigsaw puzzle. It, and every team's in this boat. They'll have 30, 35, upwards of 40 free agents, almost half the the entire roster of the franchise. And it is a tough go. And you're trying to mix and match and fit under the salary cap. It's not easy being a general manager in the Canadian Football League at this time. It really isn't. It really, and make the right choices. And you can because of that, you can rebuild very, very, very quickly now. But if you make the wrong choices, especially the year of a Grey Cup, oh boy, that um, you're hosting a Grey Cup. I mean, it's uh, you've got. We, we saw Rick, and you were there. You, you, we saw what difference it makes by having the home team involved in the Grey Cup. They want to be there again next year. Absolutely. Ask the Saskatchewan Roughriders this year. <laughs> They're not feeling too good. Let's hope a Bo Levi Mitchell is another piece to the puzzle that unlocks a Grey Cup celebration in town. It's been too long of a time, but he just might be the uh, the one piece that they've been lacking. We shall see. Uh, Rick Zamper, thanks for doing this, as always. You got it. The Ontario government gave us their version of what the federal government did last week, the mini budget, the economic statement, whatever you want to call it. And what we got today And we don't have time to go into all of it. You can read about it. There's tons of stuff online about it. And you'll hear it on the news and you'll hear bits and pieces all over the place. But what we got today seems to me anyway to be the absolute definition of good news, bad news. I want to bring in Ian Lee from University of Ottawa, from the Sprott School of Business, pardon me, at Carleton University. Yes, Yes, Ian, how are you today? Thank you for doing this. I'm doing very well. And I'm I'm, I'm not at the... Other university. Uh, know, you know what? We I knew. refer to that other university. We're, we're not there. Uh, if I was writing for the paper right now, there would have been a correction on that one. That was, yes, Carleton University is the home of Ian Lee. Uh, this seems like it is the, as I said off the top, the ultimate good news, bad news, because what we heard is that we are seeing the um, deficits get lower and lower and lower. And yet at the same time, we are seeing all the challenges that people in their households are facing with increased interest rates and inflation and all these other kinds of things, which seem to be butting heads against each other in the Ontario government's finances. Uh, I agree with you completely. It it shows, um, I I think it shows two things. It shows that uh, inflation, although it's bad, we all know that because we go to the grocery stores and it just, it sucks up more and more of our money because our, our, uh, the prices are going up more quickly than our wages and not just groceries, but all the things that we buy. The irony of when you have an, an, uh, an, a higher inflationary period than normal, like we're going through now, is the government's profit immensely. And uh, because their revenues go through the roof. And we saw this at the federal level where the deficit came down much more quickly and, uh, and, and likewise at the provincial level. And, and people may not really understand that, but there's a very, very good reason. 
And that's because the federal in a in a, com- a country like Canada, I won't go into all the other countries. Let's just stick with Canada. The federal and provincial governments are very sensitive to growth. And inflation is a type of growth. And what I mean by that, when the GDP is growing quickly, tax revenues gush into the federal government like a tsunami. They gush into the Ontario Ministry of Finance like no tomorrow. So the revenues are just flowing in. Now they're coming from us because we're paying higher prices, okay, amongst other reasons. And and so where I'm going with this, this is one argument why I've long said to my students for years, everybody, when, when you get these people saying, well, you know, GDP is not an important, we don't have to worry about that, it's just something that economists get all excited about. Well, not so fast. Uh, reven- the GDP, when the GDP goes up quickly, revenues gush in to the government of Canada and the government of Ontario that we use to pay for, oh my goodness, healthcare. Mm. Oh my goodness, teachers, professors' salaries like me, you know? And when we go into recession, all you have to do is look at the past or years of the federal or provincial government. When the economy goes into recession, revenues drop like a stone. That's why governments start going into deficit. And so that's why growth is a good thing. Well, and we may be we may be talking about the same thing here, but in inflation in particular, if an item was $10 last year, you paid x amount on a $10 of tax on a $10 item, but if inflation has bumped that up to $12, you're now paying tax on $12 more tax. So governments say they hate inflation. I'm not really sure they hate inflation as much as they may <laughs> portend to. <laughs> Scott, you're sounding like Milton Friedman. <laughs> and I, I think there's an element of truth there. You know, uh, uh, governments uh, uh, use inflation, of course, to uh, pay away indebtedness. That was Milton Friedman's argument that he said you can't trust governments because they inflate the, uh, the money supply to cover up debt and debts, indebtedness that they've taken on. And then they pay back those debts with cheapened dollars uh, brought about by the, by the inflation. But I, I don't want to go down that road. My, I don't want to leave your listeners, though, with the idea. I'm saying, therefore, inflation's cool. It's a good idea because it's very corrosive. It's very subtle. And, and as I, you know, I lived through it back in the 70s mm. and I saw it. And although I was doing okay, I was young, I was in a job where I was getting lots of raises and in an industry that could pass on the price increases of inflation. So I was doing okay, but there were lots of people on fixed incomes that were not doing okay. Not everybody profits from inflation. Not everybody loses. I mean, in the short run, I was profiting from inflation in the short run in those days. I just bought a house. It was going up very rapidly in value, literally 10%, 15% a year. But, you know, in the the the, the larger picture, inflation is very destructive. Mm-hmm. And to bring that back to our conversation, I think that this economic statement today showing that the economy is really slowing down, as did the federal update last week, is showing that the interest rates are biting. The interest rates are impacting. They are cooling down the economy. 
And again, some people may say, well, why is that a good thing? Well, if we can put the genie back, the inflation genie back inside the bottle where it belongs, and I'm talking long-term stable 2%, thereabouts, 1.52%, this will benefit everybody because inflation falls disproportionately on low-income people the most. They're hurt the most. That's why uh, parties like the NDP should be cheering the Bank of Canada, not attacking them because inflation really does hurt low-income and modest-income people. Where this is going to become, I think, very complicated for the government now is you have all these unions. We've been hearing about strikes with CUPE yes, and with yes. Metrolinks and Ghosts and yeah. all these. Yeah. You've got all these unions that now want more money. They're all going to point at this and go, look, your deficit is disappearing. Things are fantastic. Yeah. Meanwhile, the government's going to be saying, yeah, but we've got inflation and interest rate hikes that are going to make that really bad. You've got both sides now with a compelling argument that the other side is wrong. That doesn't make for easy negotiations. No, it's going to be very difficult. You're absolutely right. And 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 here I am. I'm unionized, okay? And I'm in the university sector, and uh, my wages have been zero, <laughs> to be blunt. I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I just love that. You know, I think that's fun. The, but if you step back and look at the big, the bigger picture and say, look, if all, all these unions get very large increases, I mean, five, six, eight, ten percent, you can kiss goodbye to the idea of putting the inflation genie back in the bottle. You can kiss goodbye to it going back down to two. And you might as well, you might as well, all of us get ready and get it and accept and, and expect and continued grocery price increases of, you know, eight, nine, ten percent a year. And I don't know anyone that's cheering for that solution. No, I don't but think the so. Two, the, they're correlated, Scott. I mean, you just can't say we're going to be giving wage increases of 8%, 10%. But by the way, we want the, the, the prices of our food and our and our rent and our groceries to go back down to two. It becomes all yeah, correlated. It becomes correlated. a huge problem for sure. I uh, wish we had a lot more time. I always enjoy chatting. Uh, Ian Lee from Carleton University. Let's yes. make that clear. From Carleton University, thank you so much for this. Always appreciate it. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The World Cup starts on Sunday. This coming Sunday, the World Cup gets going. Uh, Qatar, the host, or Qatar, again, depending how you pronounce it, versus Ecuador on Sunday morning. Wednesday, Canada gets its first World Cup action since 1986 when it takes on Belgium at 2 o'clock, 1.45, I believe, is the actual start time, but here, Eastern Time. So you will be able to watch that on Wednesday afternoon, plan your day accordingly, how you can skip work or find it on your computer with a streaming device or something. I, d- I doubt that there will be large swaths of Canada that will be highly unproductive on Wednesday afternoon as we see our guys play in this championship for the first time in a long, long time. John McGrain is a guy, um, he, he has been an Olympian for Canada, he's been a member of Canada's national team, he's been a pro soccer player, he's been involved in soccer in so many ways, a member of more halls of fame than he can keep track of. Uh, he joins us now. John, how are you today? I'm feeling great. Looking forward to this weekend. Well, it is. It, it does feel odd that we're starting a World Cup when the snow is beginning to fly, for sure. But yeah, it's uh, it is exciting, even for people who are unlike you, even for people who are just moderate soccer fans. I think this has grabbed an awful lot of people's interest that they will tune in just to see what it's all about. Well, it's not just about watching the World Cup. I I think that some of the greatest players in the world is you know are going to be there. Uh, but more importantly, the way that Canada has played over the last, well, I don't know, uh, last year, 
I think it's uh, it, it's going to be fun to watch our national team do well. Well, it's going to be fun just to watch our national team. Quite honestly, in this tournament, I mean, the last time again, I, most people probably, if you were to look at the way StatsCan breaks down the median age in this country, most people may not even remember the last time Canada played in the World Cup. It's been a lifetime. Well, how long has it been? Forty odd years. I mean, uh, the younger generation that's playing right now at the World Cup weren't born. Right. Uh, so for them, you know, they'd have to look up a YouTube and and, and probably look at it, uh, but. I think the team that's playing this time around in Qatar uh, is by far uh, probably the best group of players that we've ever put together in a long, long time. So, okay, so that being said then, this is the $20 million question. It used to be the million-dollar question, but inflation has kicked in. The $20 million question, what is a reasonable expectation for Canada? I mean, they start against Belgium, which is one of the world's dominant best teams. That's a that's a tough way to get going. But what's a reasonable expectation for our team? You know, it's uh, I, I I I called the group that they're in. You know, if it's not the group of death, it's it's pretty darn close. Uh, people look at Belgium, the number two team in the world. Uh, you can't look past Croatia. It is a quality quality team top 20. Uh, And Morocco, you can't look past Morocco. Morocco is a very talented team. Uh, But that being said, Canada has beat Mexico. They have beat the United States. And both of them are top 20 teams in the world. So in a neutral site like this, uh, I think it's great that they're playing Belgium in the first game because Belgium will be nervous. They may take the Canadians lightly. Uh, The big game, I think, is going to be against Croatia. Uh, if they can get a result, a draw or something against Croatia, uh, then the game against Morocco will be the big one, whether they qualify through. But, uh, but to be honest with you, we weren't supposed to be here. No, we weren't. And, and, and I always think it's funny when we say we, because, well, I mean, you've played at this level. Whenever time I say we, it's like, well, I've not done anything to help us get here. But nonetheless, I wonder about Belgium. Not that they're not outstanding. They are. They're a fantastic team. But if Canada can hang around and don't give up an early goal because they've got nerves. And if they can keep this close, I mean, people in Belgium have a lot more riding on this than people in Canada. Not that we're not interested, but again, I don't think anyone in Canada is pretending that we're going to win the World Cup. In Belgium, they really believe they can. And boy, if Canada can hang around and make things nervy for Belgium, I think you're right. I think that, I mean, as good as they are, boy, that puts the pressure on them. Well, the first the first game is always the most nervous for any team that plays in the World Cup because, there's, especially Belgium, there's so much expectation for them. An old coach once said to me once when we were playing against New York Cosmos and they had all the stars, you know, and it felt like we didn't have a chance. What he basically said was, hard work will always beat skill when skill does not work hard. And I think that as far as the Belgians is concerned, if we can do that, I think there's a real opportunity to hope that they will take Canada lightly and the Canadian boys will play very, very hard. Yeah, and those those New York Cosmos teams, there was a guy, I think there was a guy on that team named Pele, if I recall correctly. So, um, yes, they had some skill. The, the Canada team that is going there, again, as much as we have watched them, and a lot of Canadians have jumped on board this team in a big way that didn't watch. I mean, a lot of people that had no interest in our national team, largely because they were terrible for a long time, but have now jumped on. 
We've watched them. We know what they're about, but I'm with you. I think there's going to be a lot of places in the world that have paid a lot of attention to the known powerhouses and really have probably, I mean, they've done their scouting, but the people don't know much about Canada's team outside Canada, do they? Well, I tell you what, there's kids called Eustachio that is, is scoring great goals right now for Porto. Uh, there's a kid called uh, Alfonso Davies, who's probably going to be as close to winning a European championship and has already won one. Uh, and a kid called uh, Jonathan David that is now being scouted by Chelsea, Man United and Liverpool. Uh, and that's just three of, I think, probably six or seven players on this team that uh, that I believe are going to be stars in the future. Don't forget, this is a very young team. Weren't supposed to be here in 2022. This is a team that was being built for 2026. When we host. When 2026 comes around, these kids are all in their 26, 27, 28, and they'll have all the experience in the world. So what they're doing is building for 26, but I think they're going to cause a lot of heart, a heartache for a lot of teams that take them for granted. Uh, how much was your, we got to run here, but how much was your heart stopped though uh, when Alfonso Davies, we heard about a week ago that he had left his club game with a hamstring injury. I think a lot of Canadian soccer fans were, were turning to the bottle immediately. Oh, well, you don't need, you don't, I don't need an excuse to turn to the bottle. <laughs> but, but I will say this, uh, he's, he's the heart, he's the, he's the heart and soul uh, talent-wise, as far as the game is concerned in Canada. But there's a lot of players. I mean, we've got to make sure that our own Hamilton uh, Milan Borjan yep. can play as well as he did because they wouldn't be where they are right now without him. And uh, and all of Hamilton should be watching just to see and be proud of the fact that, that he's in goal for Canada. Unquestionably. And if he has a great, se- if he has a great series uh, in uh in the World Cup, I think anything is possible. Glad you mentioned him. We got to run. I'm glad you mentioned Milan Borgen. Uh, yes, Hamilton guy plays net. Uh, has been terrific in qualifying, and uh, as John says, obviously he will be huge in this. Uh, depend, determining how Canada does. John McGrain, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Scott. Back in 1972, Richard Nixon ended decades of a standoff of sorts with China and went to China for meetings as the president of the United States with the Chinese leaders. And, you know, there have been meetings between the U.S. and China over the years since. But today, a lot made of the meeting between the two leaders, the two presidents of China and the United States, um, Joe Biden and uh, and Xi Jinping. A um, lot of talk about what this was going to do. Well, they met for three hours today. Was it a historic meeting well, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, who is the Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, who joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon, Scott. There are so many issues going on right now involving China and the West. Uh, if, you, if you're the President of the United States, where do you even begin with the discussions? First, you have to have a discussion, and that's the historic nature of what we're talking about today. This is an actual face-to-face, in-person summit meeting between the two most important powers uh, on the planet. They uh, agreed to meet, and they agreed to, in this case, right off the top, suggest what is needed here is a way to manage the relationship. 
will there have to be, uh, will there be an inevitable war between the two powers? That is the status quo power, the current leader of the world, uh, that is the U.S., and a rising power. This is historically a recipe for, for war. And this is how major wars start, but these are two nu nuclear armed states. They are both advanced uh, powers. So what was going on today was first and foremost, an effort by the two sides to say, we wish to manage this conflict. Uh, Joe Biden was very explicit about it. We will, we will compete a lot, but we will not uh, go into conflict as a result with China. And China in turn responded by saying that, um, we have no intention, and they put it in the kind of the historical context I just mentioned, we have no intention to upset the existing status quo, nor interfere in the internal politics of other states. So this was right off the top, a way to reassure each other that the world, and they each said this as well, the world expects powers such as us, the major powers, to find a way to manage the relationships. And that was the kickoff for a more detailed and, um, as they put it, candid discussion, which means it was pretty rough. And Elliot, with, with that last comment, though, where you say that where they're not going to get involved or interfere, is that even remotely plausible? We've had a series of stories here in Canada over the last number of weeks about them funding candidates to run for office in, in our federal government to be able to impact on what our government does to benefit China. We've had stories of police stations being open to arrest dissidents. Right. It doesn't sound even the least bit plausible that they when they say something like that. Yes. Joe Biden, in effect, was telling uh, China, we know what you're doing. Stop doing it. Uh, he didn't put it quite that way, but that was uh, part of a subtext of the text. Uh, the behavior of this superpower as it has emerged, that is, how it emerged and how they behave now that they are clearly a superpower. That's why this summit was so important. Uh, the world does expect China to behave differently now. Uh, Joe Biden was delivering that message. China, uh, let's talk about what good, I think, did come out of this. Uh, the, two, the two states agreed that they had to find a way to manage and not go into conflict. They also did something very important, I think. They agreed to reopen communications at all levels in order to deliver the kind of message that you just alluded to. If Joe Biden and the West wants to deliver that message, you have to be able to talk to China. China had broken off a lot of the normal lines of communication between uh, the two states at the time of Nancy Pelosi's visit not long ago. Uh, this uh, is now being reopened. They're now going to set up working groups. The Secretary of State of the United States is being sent to Beijing to follow up immediately after this. I think something else very important that came out was a statement by the two states, that is China and the United States, directly relating to Ukraine, that nuclear wars cannot be won and therefore they cannot be fought. This was a message from China as well as the U.S. Mm. to uh, basically stop talking about nuclear war. It's a bad thing. So there are some positive things to come out of it. We're yeah, but then but let me jump in for one sec, sure. though, because when they talk about war, they also said, so the, she also said, 
Taiwan's independence right. is not that's a, that's a breaking point. If the U.S. were to get involved, they say that's as irreconcilable as water and fire. That that is a red line in the sand. That they will not allow the U.S. to get involved in Taiwan's independence. That seems like a an essential part of the U.S. and the West's view of how the world is yeah. to be. Yes, Xi Jinping said this is a core interest. Right, uh, a core interest in the relationship. The uh, Taiwan issue is going to be a flashpoint. What was said at the summit was, Joe Biden said, we've not changed our position. Uh, we recognize what was said before, that, uh, you know, the China has to, uh, we recognize that uh, the situation should stay as it is, the status quo. Basically, Xi Jinping is saying, don't encourage independence. And uh, Joe Biden is saying, well, we're not going to encourage it, but... Uh, He's made it very clear several times that the United States state's position is that, yes, the U.S. might very well come to Taiwan's age. Strategic ambiguity is thinning out in regard to Taiwan, and it is clearly going to be a flashpoint. Uh, just before we go, uh, one question about Joe Biden going into this. Um, in, in previous meetings, well, let me say this. Uh, there are those who have looked at Joe Biden in recent years and said this doesn't necessarily look like a man at the height of his acuity or strength. D whether that's true or not, d do you think China looks at Joe Biden as a strong leader or does it matter as long as he's the president of the United States? The position of China, Xi Jinping, is that the West is declining and the East is rising. And this is the precise juncture at which these two leaders who know each other very well, they've dealt with each other over the years and five times they've been doing these uh, Zoom meetings. So this is a face-to-face. -face. The situation right now is that Xi Jinping has a lot of serious problems at home and the United States sends a president who's newly, uh, newly empowered because of what happened. So the, in terms of the contest between democracies and autocracies, I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden does represent a very clear and vigorous representation of democracy matters, and we're going to push back against autocracy. And autocracy, in this case, re represented by Xi Jinping, did face a stronger president as a result. And he, in turn, is weakened at home by various internal matters. But he has also just been reelected, basically, for a third term, but basically leader mm -hmm. for life. It's, it's a clash of titans. Uh, I, Joe Biden has been showing, I think, extraordinary vigor. Uh, he's keeping up a, a killing pace of meetings uh, at home and abroad. But right now, the important thing is this relationship, which is crucial to the future of the world, has happened. Messages have been delivered. Red lines have been declared. Uh, the, um, the goal of not leading to war. Yeah, is number one there for sure. Is number one, and that's what came out of this summit. Elliot Tepper. Next is another matter. We got to run. I wish we had a lot more time. Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time. Sure. Thank you, Scott. Quick break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. And a story that has been uh, creating a lot of chatter and a lot of rumblings around the city over the last little while. Um, talks about a, well, what seems to be a communications breakdown. I don't know how else to describe it between the people who have been tasked with renovating First Ontario Centre and those who call that place home that own teams. 
The Hamilton Bulldogs, the Hamilton Honey Badgers, and the Toronto Rock all say they were caught off guard on Friday when they heard that they were going to be kicked out of the arena for two years because that's how long renovations are going to take now. They had thought they might be out for a little bit or they could work around them with construction or whatever else. Well, they're not happy about this. Hupeg, which is the group that is overseeing this construction, says, well, they shouldn't be that surprised because we've made mentions before that this could happen. And we did talk to some of them. But again, it seems as though communication is at the core of this. Want to bring in someone who is on his last day on the job, uh, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who um, moves into private life after today when the new council is sworn in tomorrow. But his ward is the one that First Ontario Centre sits in. He's been every bit involved in hearing what's been going on with this. Uh, Jason, listen, thanks for doing this on your last day. Appreciate this. My last eight minutes with Scott Radley as an official official. And that's it after five. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about this for a second, because I would have to, we've got three people who own teams who are saying, we didn't really know what was going on. We've got a group that's doing it saying, yeah, you probably should have known what was going on. What did you, when on Friday when this came out and when the letters went to the teams and they say they were told about this, did you know, as the counselor for that ward, did you know what was going to be going on with a two-year construction plan? I, no, I wouldn't suggest anybody on council probably wouldn't have known either. And those who were CC'd were made privy to on Friday, as you say, uh, a construction timeline that uh, you know wasn't available to us until the until the the day we saw it, which was Friday. I, I don't even know, to be honest, uh, you know how long it's been since Hoopeg has known. I would suggest, though, Scott, it's probably been fairly recently because. You know, we modified as a council only a few short months ago that agreement, a very extensive agreement. And you can imagine all the divisions, including legal and real estate and everyone else uh, with Hoopeg to add that, call it a bonus uh, with OVG coming into the picture. And so that whole agreement had to be modified. Now, the, the upside to that, obviously, as you well know, being uh, steeped in this yourself from day one, is, you know, uh, a capital investment that probably will double to close to $200 million and therefore a greater, more extensive project. And therefore, my guess is, in reading between the lines from Friday's message, uh, no uh, uh, opportunity for Hoopeg to, to do it in stages and still let the three main tenants uh, operate during the 23-24 season. Right. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, the OVG, Tim Laiwicki, who used to be the head of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, right. now has a group that renovates and builds arenas. He's now partnered with Hupeg, and that has substantially increased the scale of what they're going to do. So that that's the so you're right. This is on its face, Jason, this is a a good news story for Hamilton that you have this big capital project that will end up with a beautiful arena downtown. The the part about this where it goes a little bit off the rails is well, for the teams in the meantime, what do they do? And if they didn't know, where do they go and play? Yeah, you know, whenever we do road construction in Ward 2, uh, or did, I guess, in six minutes' time, <laughs> the, uh, the the catchphrase that I would use all the time, but admit to you, Scott, it never really went over that well, is short-term pain in your neighborhood while we rip up the roads and sidewalks for a long-term gain. And that, uh, I think... Uh, no, Michael Landlauer doesn't want to hear that. Uh, John over at the Honey Badgers as well. And I did read your article. It looks like the, the Toronto Rock are a little more 
understanding and maybe we're um, prepared for this being from Toronto, but regardless, they don't want to hear that either. So the people that are really uh, upset, understandably, are the ones that, uh, you know, uh, I read in your piece, Andlauer has about, what, a, a month to get his act together with the OHL. Um, uh, they need to know sooner rather than later where the Bulldogs are playing. And so that's a bit of a scramble for a busy guy, and I could understand his uh, his anger at this point for sure. When you said that City Council probably did not know or really didn't know, and maybe there's reasons maybe not, should Council have known this stuff? Is this the kind of thing that you should have been as councillors in the loop on? Or when you have handed this project off to Hupeg, are you essentially saying, yeah, just tell us when something happens. We don't need to know right. every little detail. Uh, right. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, I would suggest that uh, once construction starts on your major entertainment facility, council should be and will be updated. But the master agreement, I'm certain, I don't have it in front of me, and they're going to wipe it from my computer in less than four minutes now, Scott. <laughs> but the master agreement would say, uh, keep us apprised. And construction scheduling, especially construction, because we have construction management plans on everything we do. Um, that that would be a report that comes to council too. The one thing I do know from this master agreement, it really is in the hands of the very qualified people at Hoopeg uh, to deal with their their prime tenants, not necessarily the city. Now, since this has come out over the uh, course of the weekend and with your reporting, uh, the city, my understanding is the economic development department has just stepped up and is going to assist. The whole point too is there's communication and engagement with the community, Scott. That that is part of the master agreement. That phase hasn't begun yet either. And it looks to me like Hoopeg's doing the right thing there too, and including their prime tenants, Honey Badgers, Rock, Bulldogs, in in that process as well. Whether they step up and want to be part of it is a different story. So I don't know the extent in short on how Hoopeg has been communicating with their prime tenants. I do know they're ready to get into a phase where a really steadfast, robust communication will be unavoidable. That is Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr for two and a half more minutes. That's, <laughs> that's the last that's, time I'm going to hear that. That's as okay. cutting it as close as we can to the wire. Uh, listen, I appreciate you doing this as your last act as Councillor. Appreciate it. I will read with interest and listen to you with interest the follow-ups on this particular case because I was the guy who signed the motions on it. So, Jason Farr, off to be a private citizen now. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Masks are back in the news in a big, big way, as you may have heard something about if you've been listening to their news or you've been reading anything or you've just been talking to people. Masks are once again a topic of discussion. And the Ontario government is right now in the midst of seemingly trying to figure out what to do with this. Ontario's top doctor has encouraged people to begin wearing masks indoors, but there's no mandate at this point. Some people say there should be. Some polls say people are in favor of such a thing. What should we be doing? We'd like to bring in Thomas Tenkate. He's a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, thank you for this today. I always appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. Where do you go on this? Uh, I mean, you, you hear all these debates and you see people's points of view and you hear doctors talking. And should we be going back down the path of a mask mandate or is that a loser because people are already saying, some of them, I'm not going to do it because I'm done with this? Where, how do we deal with this? Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's a very difficult situation right now because I think 
you know, we're, we're, you know, a few years into the pandemic and it's, it's, it's not over yet. And uh, we're sort of seeing that what they're calling the triple threat with the uh, influenza and the RSV viruses, uh, you know, coming on board now too. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're at a different stage uh, now than where we were previously when people were much more accepting of, of masks. And so, so I think it's, in a lot of ways, we've got to be thinking about masks uh, in, a, in a broader sense and, and how, do we, how do we provide a culture of you know, mar- acceptance of mask wearing and, and making them you know, really available and, and, and uh, you know, sort of having it as, as, as a, an acceptable thing for people to do. Uh, and and so, so that's really the, what we've got to get to. You know, whether or not we need to go down a, a mandate uh, again is, is another question, and, and the question then is, you know, if, if we do a mandate, will will people observe it? And, and my sense is that uh, we would probably have less uh, less uh, compliance this time around than what we've what we've had in the past. Here's here's what I'm truly puzzled by on this one. There was a poll that came out a week or two ago. I'm sure you saw it. That I think the number was either 53 or 57 percent of Ontarians said they favoured a return to a mask mandate, and oh, that's fine. But when I go out and when you go out into a store or wherever else, there is nowhere close to 57% of people wearing masks. There's probably 5%. And I don't understand why people, if they support the idea of wearing a mask, why are you not wearing a mask then? I, I don't get it. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, I, I, I take transit here all the time and uh, the number of people wearing a mask on, on, the, on the subway trains or, or buses is is very few uh, now. You know, like I say, it's probably probably five percent or, or so, and and uh, it is it is puzzling. I, I think you know what we're seeing is that uh, people are saying yes, you know, that they're, they're a good idea, but maybe they're not they're, they're not a good idea for me. I, you know, I've got reasons why I don't you know would rather not wear them. Whereas whereas I think you know we we have to sort of overall sort of look at look at masks as as a viable and an effective option within a range of other options. Uh, and so then the question is, how do we get people to wear masks more, more frequently and more often, and particularly in these higher risk indoor settings? Uh, but and, and like it's, it's, not, it's not one of those things, it's not a forever thing, but we, we very much at this point in, the, in time with, with the, uh, the, the rising cases of, of the, a range of respiratory viruses and the impact on the healthcare system, if we don't do something about this and don't implement some additional measures, then we, we will be having you know, increased uh, impacts on the healthcare system. And as we're seeing uh, various you know, uh, medical procedures getting cancelled and, and uh, to be able to free up staff to be able to handle, handle the, the impact. So, so, so it's, it's definitely a, a pretty serious situation uh, that we, we have to do something about. The question is, how, how is the best way to do it? And you said, and indisputably, I think what you're saying is true, but you also said that this is not a forever situation. And yet, last year and the year before, um, Stats Canada keeps track of flu statistics, people who needed treatment for flu. And the flu influenza, I'm not exaggerating, was almost at zero cases across the country. I mean, it, it almost didn't exist for the last couple of years. And now that we've taken off our masks and we're not social distancing, we're seeing these cases go up again where hospitals are concerned about it by definition wouldn't this become a permanent situation every winter we'd have to do this because every year now if we don't do those things we're going to see this rise again in these cases rsv and flu and everything else it seems like we're positioning ourselves that we're going to have to do this every winter 
I, I do agree with you that uh, you know, masks are a very effective measure against a range of respiratory viruses. And, you, and if you want to try and if you want to control them, then, then it's definitely going to be a measure that we, we should be looking to on a, on a regular basis. I think you know one of the, the issues is how, how do we do that, and we, we know that for for any any you know human behaviours that we want to change uh, and we want to get compliance for for new behaviours, it it takes a it's a multi pronged approach of of education as well as as well as you know mandate you know requirements, and we've seen that with uh, seatbelts and you know, various smoking initiatives and, and whatever else. And until you actually put in place measures that say you know, you can do this and you can't do this or, or that, then, then it, you know, those backed up with the other measures are really what's needed to, to change people's behaviours. And so, so the, the question is, do, should, should we be going to that situation on an ongoing basis? Like, I, I, as a public health person, I would say, yes, I think that's, it would be an important thing to do, uh, given the situation we've got, because, you know, COVID isn't going away the, the other viruses aren't going away, so so we have to think about this as a, as an ongoing situation. And so then, what's the best way to you know try and prevent this into the future? And so so definitely masks are, should should be one of the one of the pieces of the puzzle that we we should be implementing. And, and like in the past, we haven't implemented them pre-COVID, but COVID has shown that they are an effective measure. And I think it's definitely something that should be uh, should be part of the, the range of measures that public health agencies really, really advocate for. We've got one minute. This question, it's unfair to ask you to answer this in a minute. I grant you, we need a lot more time, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. And that is some have suggested that masks are a problem for kids because kids need to build up their immunity in order to be able to fight things like the flu or the cold, common cold or whatever. And when we've had kids away from schools and then wearing masks, they haven't had that opportunity and we're only going to create more problems for them when they finally are exposed to these things because they don't get a chance to build that immunity. Is Do you believe that's a real issue? I, I think that there, there's you know part 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 truth to that. You know, my sense is that uh, you know kids are not going to wear masks as efficiently and as effectively as as adults might, and so so they're still going to have some level of exposure even if they they're you know wearing their masks and, or, and you know at times they're wearing them and other times they're not. So so I think that they're still going to have some level of exposure that will provide a, a level of immunity, but having masks will provide a, a broader broader protection for them. It is uh, it is a fascinating topic for sure that uh, that I mean, even if it's only even if it is fifty three or fifty seven percent it's still a pretty divided population and and I I agree with you I think it's going to be tough to mandate it now some will maybe do it some not so much uh, Thomas Tenkate professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University we always love having you on thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. Have a great evening. Tomorrow at City Hall, the new council will be sworn in. Uh, A correction, because I do make mistakes at times. The swearing in for the new council, not tomorrow. I was thinking it was Tuesday for some reason. Wednesday is when the new council is sworn in. So, um, you know, in case you were planning your day around that, (laughs) that's when that's going to be. Wednesday, not Tuesday. Which will mean that my next guest uh, passes the baton or the torch or... Whatever whatever it is, I guess the chain of office is what would officially be passed. Uh, he is Mayor Fred Eisenberg. I can still say Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, he joins us now. Mayor, thank you for this. Uh, good to be with you. Thank you. When, when it, Now, do you officially wrap up today, or do you still consider yourself mayor until 6.30 tomorrow when Andrea Horvath takes the oath? 
No, I think it's officially today is the uh, the end of it, and uh, the, tomorrow is kind of a transition day, and then uh, and clearly on Wednesday, the uh, the next council and mayor is uh, inaugurated and oh, right ready, Wednesday ready to go. Right. So, so what do you yeah. do? I mean, look, whether people have agreed with you always or not agreed with you always, and I don't think any politician gets agreed with always. One thing that we can say with absolute certainty is those who work in municipal politics, it is a basically a 24-hour-a-day job. So on your first day, when you do not have to be on call, what does Fred Eisenberger do that morning? Uh, listen, for tomorrow, uh, I've, I've got dialed up, uh, uh, you know, we, an opportunity to get some exercise in the morning, and then after that, go and get my bivalent uh, uh, vaccine, which is uh, happening at 11 o'clock tomorrow, and I encourage everyone to, uh, to get their uh, vaccinations up to date. Uh, especially given the, the news we've heard today about the, the spread in the healthcare system. And then, uh, then I have a lunch with uh, incoming uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath uh, to uh, kind of talk over some of the issues. And, uh, you know, I, I promise to be helpful and uh, do what I can to make sure it's a smooth transition as possible so that uh, they can hit the ground running. I would have to believe that's an easier lunch to have with the incoming mayor when your choice was not to run again rather than being defeated by that person? Well, sure. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've been through this process uh, a few times, and uh, I've always taken the high road. Uh, you know, whatever the choice is for the uh, community at large in terms of their next mayor or their next councillor, uh, I've always uh, made myself available to ensure that they, uh, they they get the benefit of whatever information they, they need to uh, to be successful, and we want them all to be successful. You know, whether I was a counselor at the time and, uh, you know, moved on and passed along, uh, you know, the information around Ward 5 and the city at large uh, to the next uh, incoming counselor or, or, you know, the mayor. And I, I'd been, I was in and then I was out and certainly came back again. So uh, always, always available to ensure that uh, the next council is going to be successful and do what I can to share whatever information is going to be helpful to them. Honestly, though, it, municipal, any politics, but municipal politics is you and the others. I mean, you do put yourself out there. I have to believe that at the times when you win, obviously, it feels great. But, I mean, is it is it... Is it more difficult than just losing at a game of something when you lose in politics because you have almost personally been slapped down or rejected or whatever word you want to use by people? Is it more difficult to lose in politics than anything else? Well, I would think so. I mean, only because you do it in such a public way. So right, you're right. Not, uh, you're not isolated. You're not, uh, you know, in a, a you know a small company that uh, might have you know a hundred or two hundred or a thousand employees. And you know, if you if you lose that job, or if you uh, you know get moved along, or get uh, downsized, uh, the hurt is the same. But it's not in the you know the public sense, uh, you know, doing it in front of the entire community. And so, uh, you know, losing in front of the entire community is uh, is not a not a wonderful thing. It uh, it stings. And uh, but you know, it's not a personal issue. I think at that point, I mean, it's hard not to take it personally. But you know, you really have to kind of let yourself know that you set yourself up for that and be prepared to, uh, you know, not only take the hard knocks in politics, but also to be prepared to at some point lose. I, you know, was, was grateful to have had 12 great years as mayor. Uh, and, uh, you know, I thought for me it was uh, was time to kind of step aside and uh, let others take, take on the reign. And I, w- I will tell you that is a, 
much better way to get out of politics <laughs> than uh, than getting unelected. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, actually quite quite uh, quite nice. I, you know, I've I've had lots of nice comments from people in the community at large, and uh, I'm quite happy with where I'm leaving Hamilton. Uh, and uh, you know, I I, I hearken back to uh, Andrea's. Uh, slogan on her sign which said uh, you know a new mayor for a thriving Hamilton and you know Hamilton is thriving that uh, doesn't mean we don't have challenges and problems there are there are many that need to be dealt with but uh, but the Hamilton of today is uh, quite a different Hamilton than it was uh, you know 15 years ago and the opportunities are all there the development is happening uh, the culture has changed and advanced and uh, you know we we've done a you know i think a great job of looking after those that are you know unable to look after themselves although we haven't got everybody and so uh you know i think the city has done uh, some great things in the heart of its renaissance right now and i think uh you know i, I look forward to the next council taking it from here okay so years from now when the epitaph is written because we don't do this stuff right now we do it later obviously what is the legacy of Fred Eisenberger, the mayor? If you had to pick one thing, what do you think is your legacy from this office? Well, it's going to be public transit for sure. Uh, you know, we have two streams of public transit investments happening, not only the multi-billion dollar uh, LRT, which, uh, you know, I'm happy to say everyone's supported now uh, and, you know, supported by the federal government and provincial government and fully funded by them. And uh, and is ongoing. So the work is ongoing. And you know, let let's not you know lead people to believe that uh, you know this this thing is in jeopardy. It is actively being pursued. Uh, the properties are being acquired. Uh, uh, the underground service issues are being uh, dealt with. And you know, the, uh, the 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 shovels in the ground will be sometime in uh, mid to- 2023 uh, or late 2023, I should say, that uh, when we're going to see actually work on the ground. A lot of the preparatory work is going to be happening underground. The second part is the $500 million three-party municipal, federal, provincial funding for the traditional transit service, so the traditional bus service, which includes a needed uh, bus storage facility as well as uh, expansion and all of the bus lines integrated with the LRT. So it's got to be transport public transit as being, you know, an, an overall legacy if I have to choose one. But it's really unfair to, to only well, label it to one because we've dealt with, you know, a whole range of issues that uh, that have had positive outcomes uh, and are in a position uh, to, to move forward. And I'm thinking film studio, I'm thinking waterfront development, I'm thinking uh, MIP, McMaster Innovation Park, and, you know, the cultural advancements that we've made in terms of uh, theater and uh, music, all of which uh, has made for a, you know, a, a, an enhanced vibrant city that uh, I think we can all be proud of. Just before we let you go, um, are you wearing the chain of office right now? Because I could find almost no <laughs> pictures of you wearing the chain of office. There's very few. I thought maybe his last day he just wore it everywhere, into the shower, everywhere. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no uh, it, it's, uh, it's not something that I've uh, donned often. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a ceremonial chain that's delivered by the Chamber of Commerce to the, the mayor to indicate the uh, the importance of commerce uh, in our community. And I don't need to wear the chain to, to know that importance. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, some, some uh, you know, wear it more than others. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm just not a bling kind of guy. See, I thought driving so through Tim's today, driving through Tim Hortons today, yeah. I thought maybe wearing it or if Uber Eats came to the house, you'd answer the door wearing the chain or something just to, you know, last chance. Yeah. Yeah, but no. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for that thought. But no, and you know what? I, I really appreciate the importance of the office and the importance of uh, the and the privilege of being the mayor and seeing what happens in all, in all of our community in every possible level. Uh, you know, whether it's community organizations or ethnic groups or, or religious organizations, all working to make a lives better in our community. Uh, that What an honor and privilege it has mm. been for me to be able to see all of that and participate in that. And hopefully I've done my, my part in, in mm. enhancing the quality of life for Hamiltonians. So I'm, uh, I don't need a chain of office to let me know that uh, the importance of all of that kind of work. And But the, the mm. ceremonial transfer of the chain of office to uh, to uh, Andrea Horvath on Wednesday That'll be done. indicates clearly that, uh, that she's on tap for... Uh, the next four years, for sure. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, last chance we can say that way. Uh, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. You know, I'm not going anywhere. I'm uh, still going to be in town. So if there's an issue that you think uh, I'd be helpful in, don't hesitate. Oh, you'll, you'll hear from us. No question. I uh, appreciate you doing this. Really, uh, thanks for this. So I want to bring in my next guest. We're unfortunately going to have to keep this a little shorter than I like to because he always has great things to say. Dan McTague uh, joins us, uh, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, Dan, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, good to be here. Thanks, Scott. We heard that the Ontario government is going to be holding its line on the gas tax. It's going to not be reimposing it. Um, some people think this is fantastic. Some people think this is small potatoes. Uh, is this a big deal? I think it's a big deal in the sense that, you know, it's going to save you 100, 150 bucks a year, then, you know, it's always worth something. Um, but let's, you know, let's face it, the province is not going to go bankrupt doing it. Uh, it's already taking in a substantial amount of money, uh, continuing with uh, uh, an HST of which the province picks up 8% on the higher price. So at this time last year, gases, gas prices were in the 140 range, and this year they're in the 160, 170 range. Uh, you know, the additional amount compensates for the 5.7 plus HST, so that's 6.4 cents a liter that uh, we're saving. It's better than nothing, uh, but it is uh, in an environment where, you know, gasoline prices are highly volatile, diesel prices more than volatile, likely in short supply, and uh, more importantly, the other order of government, the federal government, will be increasing carbon taxes, which will pretty much take away any savings, uh, or to a large extent, the savings that uh, we'll appreciate uh, by April the 1st when the uh, uh, yet another tranche of increase in the carbon tax mm. takes place. And it's funny because when we say, you know, this may or may not be a big deal that it's 5.7 cents or something that we're going to be not having to pay, saying we're not going to have to pay 5.7 cents is not that big a deal. But if we suddenly had to add another 5.7 cents, people would be screaming. They would, and, but they don't seem to be screaming at the 15 cents a liter they're not paying for a carbon tax, which is, by the way, going faster, going up faster than the uh, Bank of Canada's target rate of inflation of 2%. So you've got to kind of scratch your head and wonder, well, maybe the Bank of Canada should be talking about energy prices going up higher than their target. Uh, it's a little wonder that it becomes a bit of a problem for them to fight this uh, inflationary uh, fire that we're seeing across the country. Nevertheless, 
five point seven um, plus the HSC, so I say six point four cents and five point three for diesel. That's critical because it's diesel that is the one that costs raises the cost of pretty much everything. Right. There is nothing that we use that doesn't use diesel, and it doesn't matter where it is. It's the as I've said many times, it's the global fuel, the global workhorse of the uh, of our economy. Dan McTague, I wish we had a lot more time, and I'm sorry for cutting you short today. Just uh, the way it bounced. Uh, always a ple- always appreciate that. We'll do this again. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Last word. As always, we let you have the last word. After this past Ticat season, I really do hope we have that trade-up because I guarantee you we need it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.